0: and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. If you're not already following us on Twitter, please do at Bunker underscore pod. And if you want access to fun extras, tickets to the live shows and all the podcast merch, then sign up to back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up. All support as ever is very gratefully received. Now, despite facing the first truly global pandemic for generations, the worst recession for possibly 300 years, and the prospect of us having zero free trade agreements with any other country in just five months' time, Parliament has decided to furlough itself into recess for a couple of months, and many MPs have gone off to sunnier climes on their summer hollybobs but not all. Taking it rather more seriously is a group of MPs and peers who make up the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus. Concerned by the lack of government planning to mitigate a second wave of the virus and the accompanying lockdown 2.0 it would bring, the APPG, supercharged by campaign group March for Change, has launched its own parliamentary inquiry into COVID-19 and has already received more than a 1,000 submissions of evidence and will continue to meet throughout August and September. With me today to tell us more is Chair of the APBG, MP for Oxford Western Abingdon, and Lib Dem leadership hopeful Leila Moran. Layla, welcome to the Bunker Daily. Hello, it's lovely to be with Naomi. Um, are you the busiest person in the UK right now?
1: Oh, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that all the all the families that have just come on to um, summer holidays are, are juggling jobs and everything else are far far busier, but. You know, this uh, crisis is not stopping. And yes, there is a leadership contest, but uh, actually there are some things more important than the Lib Dem leadership contest. Would you believe? Um, And (laughs) coronavirus is is one of them, in my view.
0: Do you think you'll get a holiday at some point? And uh, if so, where is on your destination um, wish list?
1: um, So I was briefly last week thinking about, we've got five days where they've decided not to have hustings, which is these uh, Zoom member meetings that we've been doing. And uh, I briefly flirted with the idea of going abroad, um, but pretty much the next day, uh, they then started announcing lockdowns from Spain and all the rest of it. And I was like, no, sod this, not going to do that. So I'm going to Wales and I'm going to Cardigan Bay, I've never been before. And I'm going to somewhere with no Wi-Fi and we're going <gasps> to under a big oak tree. And it's- <laughs> Sounds yeah. divine. I know, and it's going to be great. So I'm wow. really right. excited for that.
0: Ple- pleased to hear you are getting a break. Um, okay, so before we get into like the, the meat of our discussion, for listeners who haven't got a clue what we're talking about, can you tell us what an APPG is?
1: So an APPG is an all-party parliamentary group. There's loads of them in Parliament, um, and they're set up for all sorts of different things. But it, they are a vehicle for a informal cross-party working and critically, you have to have representatives from all major political parties on them, and they are set up to look at a specific things. So, this APPG is specifically for coronavirus as a whole. But what we've decided to start doing is meet over August in order to actually prepare the country and make sure that there is evidence being heard all throughout this period in case there is a second wave. And that's our real concern, is that whilst there's been a lot of talk about these kinds of inquiries, and there will be an inquiry, you know, at some point in the future that's judge led that, you know, will take months and months to hear the the ins and outs and blame people and all the rest of it. That's not what we're interested in. What we're actually more interested in is how can we make sure that this country is prepared so that we can save lives
0: and and how did the apPG on coronavirus come about and like wh- what what was driving you to want to share it
1: well I mean I'm one of these people right who sees a problem and and doesn't think it's someone else's problem and I kept seeing lots of people talking about we need an inquiry now we need to learn the lessons now as mistakes were being made by the government as we discovered that you know PPE this protective equipment um, Uh, contracts were going wrong then we discovered that there was an issue with ventilators and was coining phrases like brexit before breathing to try and get the uh, government to actually take notice and be part of these procurement programs and then we saw that there were people starting to sadly pass away and there was the inherent bias in uh, those being from black and minority ethnic backgrounds being affected and there was all this stuff going on and meanwhile i and lots of mps were sat there going why isn't the government taking the mistakes seriously, so that they can prepare for what we know is coming next. And one of the things that really struck me about this whole coronavirus crisis um, I mean, I'm a, I've got a physics background, I did physics at Imperial. I then was a, a physics teacher for a majority of my career uh, outside Parliament before being elected. And even quite basic understanding of how this stuff works, how exponential growth works, means that when the numbers are quite small at the beginning, but you know that you are in this kind of scenario. They creep up incredibly quickly. And I noticed that there was a bit of complacency going on in the Houses of Parliament in general. I mean, I don't know if that's just because people aren't used to exponential growth and and what it means. And so I started tweeting about, you know, we need to be following the science. The science is saying this, we're lagging behind, da-da-da-da. Anyway, it got to the point where a few weeks ago, me and people like Mike Goldsworthy, who are members of the March for Change group um, were talking about we have to do something. And there were people who were talking about it, but we were like, okay, we're just going to get this group together and get started in case there is no other group that ends up forming itself. And as it happens, that is exactly what's happened. So this is the only group, as far as I'm aware, um, that is formally set up in order to look at what do we need to do as a country to prepare for the second wave?
0: And um, Mike, of course, is a scientist too. So uh, yeah, the, the scientists are here to save us, which which is great to hear. Um, you, you've mentioned that APPGs, um, uh, it's mandatory that they're cross-party. Um, but I mean, isn't this just filled with politicians
1: who don't like the Tories? <laughs> Absolutely not, actually. Um, so it was initially set up uh, with myself and Dan Poulter, who's a doctor, uh, who's a conservative politician, and, and we were sort of the nexus. And it was March for Change that was really driving, you know, finding out who's really interested in people like Sarah Wollaston, who was a Conservative MP, then became a Lib Dem. um, She's been feeding in. Um, And we've now got a real cross-party feel. There's 64 members of the APPG. It's growing all the time, every day, as people hear about it more and more joining. Um, And we've had a new one today uh, from the Tory benches. We've got about 10 Conservatives. So it's not at all any kind of, you know, Remainer plot uh, to to chuck uh, stuff at the government. Actually, quite the opposite. And when, I talk about it, whether it's on the media or anywhere else, I'm very clear that this is not a blame game. We are not doing that. It's in no one's best interest to do that. We're just interested in facts and then passing those on to the government and to Boris Johnson with the hope that he's going to then act on those recommendations.
0: So you've launched an inquiry, and I I suppose some people will be saying, well, you know, why, uh, when the government has already effectively committed to an investigation, uh, you know, into how the crisis was handled anyway? And, you know, couldn't this just be seen as an attempt to undermine government while it's busy trying to handle what is an incredibly unprecedented crisis for this country?
1: Yeah, well, I'd see this as the two as completely complementary. Because they are so busy trying to handle a crisis, it's actually, I hope, helpful to have independent cross-party group looking and taking evidence and, and helpfully passing on what we're finding. And this is critical that it's happening now. You know, the question is, well, why an inquiry? Why not? They've already committed to an inquiry. Well, as far as I'm aware, if they are having an inquiry, it's very much behind closed doors. There was a suggestion that they are doing something as a sort of review, but it's not transparent. It's not open. It's not open to the public. And one of the things that we keep hearing from both members of the public, but also scientists, behavioural scientists and others, about how do you help people get come to terms with what's happening with coronavirus, and how do you gain trust with the public? Actually, transparency is a huge part of it. Um, so this is not the public inquiry that others have called for and that the government has committed to, which will be judge-led, that will happen after the fact. This is a more informal, cross-party rapid inquiry that we're doing right now and the purpose of it is to release recommendations as we go so that we can try and affect government policy in time for uh, autumn and yeah. the reason autumn so important is because that's when we may be seeing a spike in flu cases overwhelming of the NHS and the very first hearing that we've had so far um, the public hearing that we had last Wednesday was actually looking at government strategy and that was one of the things that we've ended up uh, starting to to uncover is that the government strategy is not coherent across the four nations. And in fact, Boris Johnson has not committed England, even though Wales and Scotland have, to getting to the point of what we call zero COVID, so that zero transmission of coronavirus in the community. Wouldn't we all love that? Wow. <laughs> and the reason why that's so important is because it builds reassurance. It would encourage people to actually go out and be active in the economy without having to worry as much. Uh, it's what other countries are aiming for. And our view is that it's something England should be aiming for as well. And we heard a very powerful evidence from uh, the BMA in particular, who said. That's actually, the British Medical Association. The British Medical yeah. Association, um, uh, Dr. Chan Nagpal. And he was saying that if we take on this mindset, then that will drive cases down. And the lower that we can get them, the more people are going to feel reassured to go out and go out about their daily lives and spend money and keep businesses open and all the rest of it. But also it means that when, if likely, sadly, a second wave comes in autumn, winter, the NHS will have an easier time. So you
0: took your first oral evidence as a group uh, this week, and it was live streamed uh, on several platforms, and as I understand it, you know tens of thousands of people uh, listened in. Um, this is fantastic. You know this is all about the transparency stuff you mentioned and, and helping to raise awareness and give people confidence again. So I mean you, you said you heard from, from the BMA, who else did you hear from? What were the sort of key things that stood out from you from it uh, beyond this sort of lack of government strategy for zero COVID?
1: Yeah, no, it was it was absolutely fascinating. So we heard from the NHS Confederation. So this is the group that um, is basically the professional body uh, for NHS workers. And they were talking about how um, their workers did not feel that they had been listened to, very top down approach. Um, and uh, then also we heard from uh, Unite the Union as well. So the doctor's branch of Unite the Union. And one of, there were some really interesting things that came out of it. And one was a suggestion that we should be really transparent with the public. And when you go on your six o'clock news and the 6.30 local bulletin where you've got the local weather broadcast, at the end of that, why don't you broadcast the number of coronavirus cases that have been reported in your region? And the reason why that was suggested was, well, actually, that would make people just be just that little bit more aware about wearing their masks, washing their hands, making sure that they're observing, physical distancing. Um, the other thing that came out loud and clear from all three was the lack of clarity of message from the government, how they keep chopping and changing. For example, you know, we keep seeing it everywhere, keep one metre plus, what, what's, what's plus? <laughs> <laughs> so, what does the plus a millimeter? It's exactly. what does the plus mean you know two people could understand one plus it's well it's it's one or more but it's at least one anyway it's just bizarre and yeah. it's, it's this kind of little tweak and nuance that actually is undermining public trust right now and they see that as a major issue but some of the most powerful things that we were hearing was about discrimination against black and minority ethnic uh, members of the NHS and people who work in the NHS. And the uh, the reason why that matters is because there are people who, as part of their faith, part of their religion, can't wear the normal protective equipment because mm-hmm. of their beards. Um, and because they, you know, there's also another rule that says that you've got to have uh, your sleeves higher than your elbow, but actually for some, uh, this is not acceptable uh, in their culture. And there was a, a long discussion about how that is actually actively discouraging those people from you know, being part of this this big effort because they feel they, they are, can't be as safe as everyone else. So either they decide not to go in, which is never what happens. What instead happens is that they go in and then they are using the wrong protective equipment. So again, I think one of the recommendations, we, we need to still agree this, but, but we're mulling over, but I, I can speak... Uh, fairly confidently uh, about this, um, is that we should have protective equipment that is fit for purpose for anybody, no matter their faith, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity.
0: I really like the idea about the local news so you can sort of see it you know like on today the uv warning is particularly high so make sure you're wearing your spf 50 if you go out the pollen count is this for those of you that suffer from hay fever oh and look you know coronavirus cases are now in retreat here or there's been a mini spike yeah it could be could be really helpful um so that was oral evidence but as I understand it you've also had lots and lots of written submissions uh, into the thousands I think who is giving evidence I mean I imagine it is mostly the medical profession is that right?
1: Well so we've had about 20 professional bodies some of them I've just uh, mentioned and there are many others and the royal colleges and all the rest of it but um, there are some fascinating and in fact the vast majority of the submissions are from individuals Um, around 550 or so have come um, from people who are uh, bereaved families people who have suffered with long COVID which is coronavirus symptoms that then last for not just weeks, but also months and continue to be debilitating. Actually, that has comprised the bulk of the submissions. And in our next session, which is next Wednesday, and we'll start streaming at 11.30 if anyone wants to... Join us. and um, We're going to be talking to those uh, individuals and people who are representing those individuals, because what we've noticed, um, and, uh, you know, p- following on from the discussion that we were having last week, the mental health aspect of all of this is, I think, another thing that we're going to start to be teasing out is what is the impact in terms of the trauma, not just to frontline workers, but also to people who have uh, suffered from the virus, whether it be that they themselves have suffered and continue to or Are the family members of people who have passed away and where is the support in society for them? What we know from disaster zones elsewhere in the world, and actually we're very fortunate as a country uh, that we don't tend to have very many of these. But actually, we aren't very good at this. Uh, We're not used to this. And the medium and long term consequences of the trauma of coronavirus, I think, is something else that we're going to be teasing out and looking at.
0: We, we did an entire daily bunker on long COVID. So, if listeners haven't uh, heard that one, please do scroll back and, and have, a, have a listen. It's uh, an incredibly important topic. Um, Leila, uh, who does the APPG most want to hear from? You know, if they could take evidence from one individual or group above all others, who would it be?
1: I would, well, we will be inviting the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer, of course, uh, to give evidence. And um, I hope that they will. They don't have to. Uh, we also have Independence Age who um, have given us evidence and I'm sure we will hear some, from very soon. We're lining up uh, who we're having week on week uh, as we speak. Above all, I would love for Boris Johnson to come in front of us and be able to answer our questions. I very much doubt that he will. Nevertheless, he has suggested. Um, yeah. You, we'll you, so look-
0: you asked him a PMQ uh, last week, didn't you? What, what was that? How did, how did he respond?
1: Yeah, so uh, positively, which is very helpful. So I just raised the point that this is happening, that we are going to be releasing recommendations as we go over the summer. Will he look at it? And he gave us the assurance that he would. And yes, I know there will be people listening to this podcast who are no fans of, but we also know that he's a very busy man and won't have necessarily even noted that it was happening. So I'm glad to have at least raised the profile of the inquiry with him but he has given his own assurance verbally on the floor of the house which does count for something still um that he will look at it and i think actually by the sounds of it they would welcome it Um, we are working with some quite senior conservatives behind the scenes to also make sure that there are other ways that we're going to be feeding in and uh we will be releasing recommendations every week so Oh, right. So it's
0: not just being stored up for one sort of big report at the end.
1: Exactly. And the reason for is that if we want changes to be made in time for October, November, we're going to have to let the government know now so that they can start looking at it and taking it seriously. So I envisage that pretty much every week we'll be sending an update into the government.
0: I mean, it's great for politicians and medical professionals be, to be taking you know, and giving evidence in such volume. But um, has, the, has the press picked up on your efforts? Um, how can we spread
1: the word to the wider public? Yeah, they absolutely have. And what was interesting about Wednesday was actually, it wasn't just The Guardian, it was also The Telegraph that was talking about some of the evidence that we were hearing. And I'm hopeful that especially as over the summer season, they call it the silly season in the journalistic halls of of Westminster. And the reason for that is there's not much real news. Actually, I'm I'm hopeful that this is going to give those newspapers that tend to have a slightly quieter time over the summer, something really substantial to chew on. Um, So that every time that we have an evidence session, actually what it's doing is it's raising in the public awareness all of these underlying issues that need changing and incidentally I mean one of the ways that we are going to make the government sit up and take notice is by people sort of retweeting the recommendations as they come out there is a public engagement bit of this that is so important Um, so if you're listening you know do follow us um, and I'll be putting it up on my Twitter you can also look at Uh, Mike Goldsworthy's Twitter, and it's at Coronavirus as well. Um, So do look for us. And if there's ways that you can spread the word that this is happening, that's really helpful as well.
0: I mean, I was going to ask you how confident you are that the government is going to take on board the APPG's recommendations. But you know, you you sound like you are broadly confident that there are people that are listening, but presumably, the more spotlight that gets shone on the evidence that that you're gathering and the recommendations that come out of the group that the more likely they'll be to do that or feel that they certainly have to
1: be seen to be taking it on board exactly exactly and I think you know at least and we we don't have access to all the different bits of the information that that the government have and boy do I wish I did um because I, I I would love to to see it all but they need to be reminded of what's really important. And that's what we're trying to do in this inquiry is actually tease out what are the things that are really important for them to be looking at at a time when I'm sure they are just continuing to scramble all the time. So these are the things that we are picking up. These are the things that we recommend that you change. And they do tend to write back to us. So the one thing that all party parliamentary groups have uh, is a little bit of kudos because it is cross party. It's not just you know random Lib Dem, random Labour writing into government about something just to be able to put it on Twitter or whatever. No, this is more substantial because it's cross party, and that gives us the weight that we need in order to get some of the answers. But I'm convinced that they will look because it's in everyone's interest to look, and because we're taking a tone of being very constructive with it and not being overly critical with it. Um, then I have faith that they will see it for what it is, which is us trying to be helpful on behalf of our constituents in the country.
0: And finally, uh, this isn't obviously a leadership interview, but uh, we have to ask you a couple of things. What, in your view, have the Lib Dems been doing wrong to be wallowing at 6% in the polls? And uh, what what do you think needs to happen to fix it?
1: Mm. Well, I, I think your characterisation, I'm sad to say, I agree with. Um, it's now been 10 years of decline uh, that we've seen with the party, notwithstanding the fact that we went into government in 2010. We actually lost seats. And then the three elections after that have just been hammer blows to the party, one after the other. And I'm sure there are many people listening who you know, saw what happened with stock Brexit and the dizzy heights of those European results and the local election results. And then that crushing, crushing result that we had uh, ending up with just 11 MPs. And we need first of all, to appreciate that we have been doing things wrong. And I think one of the things that we have done wrong fundamentally is we've lost trust with the electorate. And it came in a couple of ways. The first, of course, was was coalition, which feels a long time ago now. But if we remember what happened at that last election, I mean, actually, half of the media uh, mentions of the Lib Dems during that entire election had mention of the coalition in it. And we remember that question time and that Andrew Neil interview where Joe was trying to make the case for progressive values and then people would point right back to her voting record. My stance is we need to now move on from that and electing me sends that clear signal that we have. But we also have to learn from the revoke policy. And whilst I stand by stop Brexit and absolutely stand by that, there was a real feel that revoke was just so top-down. It was counter to what the Lib Dems stand for, which is bottom-up localism. And we have to show the public that we understood that we didn't listen to them enough, and we have to start by listening and now move forwards. And I, I'm i actually really hopeful, Naomi, I, and I know, you know, we're starting from a place of like, oh, my God, what's going wrong? But once you identify what's going wrong, we also know what we can do to change it. And I am, we've got time between now and the next Westminster election to build back so that we can, you know, where we can take seats off the Tories, that is the primary aim, we have to get Boris Johnson out, that has to be top of our priority. Um, I've said that if locally especially we can work with other parties to do that I'm very very keen to do that it's what we did in Oxford Western and Abingdon so successfully two elections in a row and I do think that there is a place for that kind of cross-party working particularly when it's in our interests um, so you know let's see what happens uh, for what it's worth the momentum is with my campaign but we are absolutely neck and neck so I have no idea right now how it's going to end up <laughs>
0: Leila, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to be with you.
0: And if listeners would like to submit evidence to the inquiry, where should they go? You you mentioned that lots of individuals were
1: submitting evidence. That's right. So it's appgcoronavirus.marchforchange.uk. Or if you just Google appg on coronavirus. um, And as I mentioned earlier, we're also on Twitter at appgcoronavirus great thank you very much
0: and listeners if you're already following us on twitter and supporting on patreon thank you very much but do please also leave us a review on apple podcasts if you can because like Layla, we are very open to feedback uh goodbye for now and see you all very soon
1: the bunker daily was presented by naomi smith the producer was andrew harrison the assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a podcast of